From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. It's one year after Russia invaded Ukraine, and most people in the United States and Europe still think that's when the war started. I speak to Consortium News editor Joe Loria and our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. At least you could say it started in 2014 with one of the infamous color revolutions engineered by Washington and Kiev. The reason they needed Russia to invade was so they could launch the economic war against Russia, the information war against Russia, and the proxy war against Russia. And they're losing all three. And we take another look at the Oliver Stone-produced documentary Ukraine on Fire, which tells the truth about how this war really started eight years ago with the U.S.-backed violent coup of Ukraine's democratically elected president. For weeks, this European capital has been the scene of a violent uprising. Today, the bloodiest day yet. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. First, a few headlines. The U.S. has spent well over $100 billion in rising on the proxy war with Russia and Ukraine. Lindsay Koshgarian, program director at the National Priorities Project at the Institute for Policy Studies, wrote in a recent essay that, quote, we shouldn't be adding billions upon billions of tax dollars to enrich Pentagon and contractors at a time when real people are struggling, end quote. She then listed seven things that we, meaning the United States, could do with $100 billion. One, power every household in the United States with solar energy. Two, hire 1 million elementary school teachers amid a worsening teacher shortage. Three, provide free tuition for two out of three public college students in the U.S. Four, send every household in the U.S. a $700 check to help offset effects of inflation. Five, hire 890,000 registered nurses to address shortages. Six, cover medical care for 7 million veterans. And seven, triple current enrollment in Head Start from 1 million children and families to 3 million. Next, the Rage Against the War Machine rally brought together hundreds of people to the Lincoln Memorial on February 19th to oppose the U.S. proxy war against Russia and Ukraine. Sponsored by both the People's Party and the Libertarian Party, the rally was billed as bringing together the left and right, but was primarily populated by the Libertarian Party. It featured high-profile speakers, including comedian and show host Jimmy Dore, former Green Party presidential candidate Jill Stein, and four former members of Congress, Dennis Kucinich, Tulsi Gabbard, and Dr. Ron Paul. Kucinich, a former member of Congress from Ohio, accused the Biden administration of deceit in Ukraine and of blowing up the Russia to Germany Nord Stream pipeline system. We are here today in painful recognition that our government does not have the capacity to heal the divisions in this nation or the willingness to use the basic science of human relations, sincere diplomacy, to avoid violent conflict and is, in fact, unwilling to end conflict peacefully. Its greatest talent is to craft misinformation and disinformation to subvert the media 
and misuse it as an instrument to incite fear and hatred among our people, exciting partisan divisions at home through crass politics, and stirring ancient hatreds abroad through lies, deceit, false flag operations, and provocations which profane the very essence of democracy. In blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline, this government has deliberately circumvented Article I of the U.S. Constitution, the authority of Congress to make war. It has violated international criminal law by conspiring to commit acts of sabotage and violence on the high seas. It has used illegal and unconstitutional means to destroy the energy resources needed to protect millions of people in Europe during the winter and then to profit from its illegal actions by selling energy to Europe at a four to six times markup. It has done so. It has done so blatantly, cynically, simultaneously taking credit for the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline and then denying any role in it. I speak directly to those responsible, thanks to a courageous journalist, Seymour Hirsch, Thanks to a courageous journalist, Seymour Hirsch, we know, we know what each of you did at the Nord Stream Pipeline, Mr. President, Mr. Secretary of State, Mr. National Security Advisor, and Madam Under Secretary of State, and we will not rest until you are held accountable by Congress by the International Criminal Court and by the American people at the next election. A national march on Washington for peace in Ukraine and to stop NATO is being organized by the Answer Coalition for March 18th on the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And finally, speaking of rallies, a coalition of black farmers plans to rally at the White House on Wednesday, March 1st, beginning at 11.30 a.m. to protest the failure of Biden and the Department of Agriculture to redress decades of discrimination, land theft, and broken promises for relief. Contact acresofancestry.org or blackbeltjustice.org for more information. And those are headlines and happenings. We'll be right back with our first clip from Ukraine on Fire,
On June 22, 1941, Germany invaded the USSR, launching Barbarossa, the largest military operation in world history. Barbarossa was aiming for St. Petersburg, Moscow, and Kiev, Ukraine, three destinations of major significance. Ukraine, with its rich lands and resources, was an important industrial and economic source for the USSR. To cut it off from the Soviet Union would strike a big blow indeed. For most of the Soviet Union, the Second World War was about fighting the invaders of their land. But it wasn't quite so simple for Ukraine. The truth is, Ukraine has never been a united country. When World War II broke out, a large part of Western Ukraine's population welcomed the German soldiers as liberators from the recently forced upon them Soviet rule and openly collaborated with the Germans. The real scale of collaboration was not announced for many years after the war, but we now know that whole divisions and battalions were formed by Ukrainian collaborators, such as SS Galitsyan, Noktigal, and Roland battalions. Just in the beginning of the war, more than 80,000 people from Galicina region voluntarily enrolled into Division SS Galicyan in a month and a half, notorious for their extreme cruelty towards the Polish, Jewish, and Russian people on the territory of Ukraine. Members of these military groups came mostly from the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, the OUN, founded in 1929. This organization had an ultimate goal of creating an ethnically pure, independent Ukraine and considered terror an acceptable tool for achieving their ends. Their official flag was black and red, land and blood. It will remain in Ukraine's history long after the OUN will cease to exist. In early 1940, the most radical nationalistic part of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists got its own leader, Stepan Bandera. Severely anti-Semitic and anti-communist, he proclaimed an independent Ukraine in 1941. His German allies frowned upon such an act of self-will, and it landed him in prison for nearly all the Second World War. Not participating in the events physically, Bandera still managed to successfully spread his ideology. Many independent historians estimate that the OUN militia exterminated from 150 to 200,000 Jews on Ukrainian territory occupied by the Germans by the end of 1941. The most notorious and outrageous massacre took place September 29th and 30th, 1941 in Babiyar, Kiev. All kikes of the city of Kiev and its vicinity must appear on Monday, September 29th by 8 o'clock in the morning. Bring documents, money, and valuables, and also warm clothing, linen, etc. Any kikes who do not follow this order and are found elsewhere will be shot. 33,771 Jews were killed in this two-day operation of the Nazis and Ukrainian militia. Another outrageous massacre was carried out by the Ukrainian insurgent army and the Bandera faction of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists in German-occupied Polish Volhynia 
and eastern Galicia between 1943 and 1944. This genocide of Poles was led by Mykola Lebed, 35,000 to 60,000 people in Volhynia, and 25 to 40,000 eastern Galicia fell victim to this massive ethnic cleansing operation. Sensing the inevitable loss of the German troops, the organization of Ukrainian nationalists gave up on their former ally and began fighting equally against the Germans and the Soviet forces. In January 1943, USSR troops started pushing the Nazis back, liberating one part of Ukraine after another. Western Ukraine was the last Ukrainian region held by the Germans, finally being liberated in October of 1944. Bandera's bands continued to wage their guerrilla war against the Soviet regime, carrying out bloody raids on Ukrainian villages and towns, and leaving behind chaos and casualties. This war went on until the middle of the 1950s, when the last collaborators were either detained or fled the country. On May 7, 1945, Germany unconditionally surrendered to the Allies. Ukraine remained a part of the Soviet Union. The peace after the Second World War was short-lived. The United States and the Soviet Union, nations who allied together along with England to defeat the Nazis, tragically became foes as the Cold War began. Well, that was the first clip we're featuring today from Ukraine on Fire. And this documentary tells the truth about the history of Nazi collaboration in Ukraine, the country that the U.S. has already given more than $100 billion in the current proxy war against Russia. But the history of Ukraine, Russia, the United States, and the former Soviet Union won't be a part of these narratives marking the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine of these narratives marking the first anniversary of what Russia calls its special military operation in Ukraine, the war there. Now we're going to go to our next clip of Ukraine on Fire. The era of political and military tension between the U.S. and the USSR lasted for nearly 45 years, keeping humanity under the constant threat of nuclear war. In this battle, the United States never lost sight of Ukraine's importance. U.S. intelligence kept a close eye on Ukrainian nationalists' organizations as a possible source of counterintelligence against the Soviet Union. CIA documents that just recently have been declassified show strong ties between U.S. intelligence and Ukrainian nationalists since 1946. From the CIA agency report, it is clear that they were not mistaken about the nature of Ukrainian nationalist organizations or their leader, Stepan Bandera himself. According to an OSS report of September 1945, Bandera had earned a fierce reputation for conducting a reign of terror during World War II. After the Second World War, Bandera and other Ukrainian Nazi leaders fled to Europe where the CIA helped them hide. The CIA later informed the Immigration and Naturalization Service that it had concealed Stefan Bandera and other Ukrainians from the Soviets. 
the operations involving Ukrainians continued for many years. The Nuremberg trials of 1945 and 1946 brought the political, economic, and military leaders of fascist Germany to justice and revealed to the world the monstrous face of Nazism and the crimes they committed. But the Ukrainian Nazis were spared the same fate, and some were even granted indulgences by the CIA. By 1954, the agency excused the illegal activities of the OUN security branch in the name of Cold War necessity. In 1949, Mykola Lebed, the man responsible for the massacres in Volhynia, was moved to the United States, where he died in 1989 without ever being investigated or pursued as a war criminal. The CIA moved to protect Ukrainian nationalist leader Mykola Lebed from criminal investigation by the Immigration and Naturalization Service in 1952. Perhaps Bandera lost his use to the US, or maybe KGB agents outsmarted the CIA. But in 1959, Stepan Bandera, the leader of the Ukrainian nationalists, was killed in Munich, where he was hiding under the name of Stefan Popol. It would be fair to say that Bandera became a major symbol of Ukrainian nationalism by sheer chance, for he was neither its only leader nor its most powerful one. Dmitro Donsov was the father of the far-right totalitarian doctrine in Ukraine. Andriy Melnik was the leader of another faction of the OUN. Roman Shuhevich was a general of the Ukrainian insurgent army, and others contributed greatly to the movement. Bandera's dangerous ideology, suppressed by the communist authorities, but supported by external forces, never really died. The seeds of Ukrainian nationalism were passed from generation to generation. Unfortunately, it was just a matter of time before they would once again blossom. In 1954, Ukraine's territory was expanded even more when Nikita Khrushchev, the leader of the USSR and a Ukrainian himself, generously gave the Crimean region to Ukraine. Historians would argue about the legitimacy of this transfer for many years to come, and 60 years after Khrushchev's gift, dramatic new events would take place in Crimea. The eyes of the world are on Ukraine as the crisis in Crimea continues. Dozens of heavily armed men seized government buildings in Crimea. Should Ukraine just shrug its shoulders and say, okay, Crimea, it's lost? And the old arguments would heat up once again. The Cold War would heat up and cool down by turns, while both rivals were obsessively building up military capacity. The turning point took place when the new era, Perestroika, came to the USSR with its new leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, in the middle of the 1980s. Perestroika meant restructuring towards liberalization and democratization. It certainly had a positive impact on the international situation. Well, astonishing news from East Germany, where the East German authorities have said, in essence, that the Berlin Wall doesn't mean anything anymore. But inside the USSR, the weakening of Kremlin control had different consequences. In Ukraine, a nationalistic political organization, Narodny Ruch, or People's Movement, emerged in 1989 due to this new openness. They advocated for independence of Ukraine from the USSR and became an incubator for leaders of Ukrainian neo-Nazism. In 1991, one of them, Oleg Tyagnibok, founded Svoboda. 
an openly radical nationalist party preaching the good old principles of Bandera. Purge Ukraine from the Jews and Russians, Ukraine for Ukrainians, and so on. His statements got him fifth place in the Simon Wiesenthal Center Top 10 Anti-Semitic World Leader Rankings of 2012. But also, sadly, attracted numerous followers. Dmitry Yarosh founded another extreme right organization, Trizu, or Trident, in 1994. In April 2013, Yarosh became an assistant to a member of parliament from the opposition party Udar. Later that same year, he would become the leader of the most radical Ukrainian Nazi group, the Right Sector. Andriy Paruby would soon appear leading a whole army of ultra-nationalist warriors. And the torch marches would once again light up the streets of Ukrainian cities. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and if you've been listening in, you know that uh, this is a really riveting story being told, and we're getting to the point where the documentary we're listening to, Ukraine on Fire, is starting to talk about the 2014 violent coup that happened on the Maidan in Kiev, in Ukraine. And it's very important because it really traces the history and legacy of neo-Nazi ideology that formed the muscle behind the U.S.-backed coup in Ukraine. And this movie, Ukraine on Fire, tells that real story. Let's go to our next clip. But before I go to the next clip, I want to go to my first interview about this anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine with Joe Loria, editor-in-chief of Consortium News, which was founded by Robert Perry. Joe, I wanted to ask you on this day that marks the anniversary of the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine about your top line thoughts. Uh, we are playing today for this show excerpts from Ukraine on Fire that document some of the facts surrounding the violent U.S.-backed coup of Ukraine in 2014. And that film also includes an appearance by the founder of Consortium News, Robert Perry, who uh, discusses on the film the well-known Victoria Newland uh, audio clip when she's talking about the coup and how they want to install their person after the coup, uh, which seems to you know indicate that they are uh, behind it and you know in endorsing this um, violent overthrow of the government. So, what are your top line thoughts on this anniversary when most of corporate media is not really going to give this backstory? Yeah, indeed. Uh, 2014 is when the war began after the coup. Uh, the people in the Donbass, the Russian ethnic uh, people in Luhansk and Donetsk Oblast, they, after the massacre in Odessa by neo-Nazis of Russian speakers, six days later, they declared independence from Ukraine. Uh, Russia never recognized that until two days before they intervened, February of last year. So the war has been going on for eight years of civil war. Russia intervened in a big way. They were helping the ethnic Russians in those uh, two breakaway provinces um, with weapons and logistics and intelligence and volunteers and equipment. 
but they did not really invade, even though that's what we heard back then, which was rubbish. But this was surely they they invaded, they went in and joined an ongoing war. And the main thing I my main thoughts are um, what I wrote on February fourth of twenty twenty two, which was twenty days before Russia intervened. And I'd said that U.S. was setting a trap for Russia, and I modeled it, uh, that they were modeling it on the trap that the U.S. set for the Soviet Union in Afghanistan in 1980. And that word trap was used by uh, Brzezinski, the, at the time the National Security Advisor for Jimmy Carter, and he gave an interview to a French magazine in 1999 in which he said, we set a trap for them to give them their Vietnam. So uh, same thing happened with Saddam. They set a trap for him to invade Kuwait. Uh, that was clear from the American ambassador at the time, Ipa Gillespie, who told Saddam Hussein that we, the U.S. didn't have any position on his dispute with Kuwait. And there were also people in the State Department who were saying this at the time. And clearly they wanted uh, Saddam to invade Kuwait so they could destroy the military that the U.S. had helped build up against Iran. So there, are, there is a precedent for drawing another country in to a conflict in order to try to destroy their their military, destroy them. So the U.S. clearly wanted Russia to invade, and there's a lot of evidence for that, and there's more evidence that has emerged. But the evidence is if they wanted to stop this invasion, they could have negotiated a treaty proposal that Russia gave in December 2021 to NATO and the U.S., in which uh, there would be a new security architecture in Europe that would take into account Russia's security needs, including withdrawing NATO troops from uh, Eastern European uh, NATO nations and withdrawing the missiles from Poland and Romania. The U.S. just basically told them to go to hell. So, And Russia had told them, if you don't negotiate this, we will respond with military technical means. So they knew that if they didn't negotiate this treaty, if they didn't try to work out something, Russia would probably intervene in a big way in Ukraine. And of course, they did. Then we knew that there was a a peace proposal that was accepted by Ukraine, by Russia. It was supposed to be implemented by Germany and France. We called the Minsk Accords back in 2015. It was uh, endorsed by the UN Security Council, became mm-hmm. international law. The U.S. never had any intention, and the Germans and the French and the Ukrainian government of implementing this. And Putin for eight years uh did not take any military action because he, wa- he thought that this uh, Minsk Accord would be implemented, which would leave those two provinces or oblasts, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, as part of Ukraine, uh, and they would have autonomy. Now we've learned not only did they not implement it, but uh, but uh, Francois Hollande and Angela Merkel and Petro Poroshenko, the leaders of Germany, France, and Ukraine at the time, have all now admitted in the last couple of months that they never had any intention of implementing that, that they purposely deceived Russia so they could build up a de facto NATO force of Ukrainian army. So for the time comes when they... L- they sucked Russia into this trap. So they built yeah. up military. The other thing is, of course, that um, there was a bunch of shelling going on to try to make it 
a difficult choice for Russia whether to go in and save the people of Donbass or allow them to be slaughtered again. And that was just around the end of February 2021. And I want to point out on February 24, 2002, Joe Biden gave a press conference at the White House after the Russians had invaded. And he was asked, what good are these new sanctions you've just announced when the sanctions didn't prevent Russia from invading. And he said, oh, those sanctions were never intended for Russia to stop Russia from invading. They mm. would show the Russian people who he is. And then later he went to Warsaw in March of 2022 and said, we have to overthrow Putin. This is what this is all about, to go back to the 1990s when Wall Street and the U.S. had dominance over Russia uh, and they acid stripped the country and enriched themselves and a bunch of oligarchs and impoverished the Russian people. That was when they had a guy like Yeltsin in charge. Putin has ended that and they want a guy like Yeltsin again. They've got to remove Putin because they don't have that kind of dominance over Russia. And that's what is the whole purpose of this operation. But the American people have been completely fooled and believe this pure morality tale. And I'm not in favor of this invasion. I don't think this war should have happened or this phase of it. Because the, but the U.S. wanted it. They absolutely wanted it. And the hypocrisy is so rank. Where is the world condemning the U.S. for what they did in Iraq, which is far worse? Right now, there's about 8,000 civilians that have died in the first in this year. According to the, right. world, the U.S. OSCE, 8,000, and that's probably higher than that. Let's say it's 10. 15,000. That's too many. But that I think the Americans killed that killed those many innocent civilians in the first week in Iraq. They killed right. hundreds of thousands. And yet we have to hear as if this is the worst thing that has ever happened in the history of the world, what Russia is doing. It's a right. very disturbing time. Yeah, you know, I, I think that on top of NATO uh, going, you know, right up to Russia's border, you know, or I should say, uh, in addition to what you're saying, you have NATO going right up to Russia's border. And I kind of liken it to just things that children learn in elementary school on the playground that, you know, if you go, if you come up to me, you come right up to me, you know, <laughs> you come into my space, then, you know, uh, I have a right to my safe space. You know, I have a, I have a right to my corner of the, of the playground. And so if you come right over to me and my friends, then, okay, then maybe you should, you deserve what you get. Right. Or, uh, it, you know, you are provoking me, you know, I'm not saying it exactly the way I want to say it, but I think the Pope said that the NATO was a dog barking on Russia's doorstep or on Russia's porch or something like that. It's the same idea right. that I think American people, uh, even if they don't know a lot of the history that you just said, they do know the idea that we're in their backyard. You know, we're right on their doorstep, just like we're in Taiwan. So it's the idea that we are purposely going around the world the US on someone else's doorstep and threatening them. You Imagine know, and then this on the U.S. borders, the U.S. would never have accepted this. And let me tell yes. you, the reason they needed Russia to invade was so they could launch the economic war against Russia, the information war against Russia and the proxy war in Russia. And they're losing all three. And the New York Times on a Thursday has a big piece saying that they have lost the information war outside of the West. Only Americans and Europeans, for the most right. part, believe this garbage. The rest of the world has not bought it. They have not put the economic sanctions on Russia. So they're losing the economic war. 
Europe has been hurt way much than, more than Russia has. They're not overthrowing uh, Putin. Uh, Macron at the Munich conference uh, last week said that he didn't believe in this. We've got to stop talking about regime change. It has failed. The trap has turned away and entrapped the U.S. and Europe. And this is the lesson that has to be understood. And the war has to end now. But big part of it for the United States is to keep it going as long as possible. And they're going to kill as many Ukrainians if they need to weaken Russia, which is what Lord Austin said is the purpose of this operation. It is the height of cynicism. And to use this uh, guy, Zelensky, as some kind of man walking on water when he's a corrupt absolutely corrupt, unqualified guy who says one thing one day and the next, and they have just made him into a big star. They shut down political parties. They are jailing their opponents. This guy is not a Democrat, small d Democrat. Right. You know, and and I, also and outlawing unions. and could have been prevented mm-hmm. and could have been prevented, but it wasn't because they wanted it and they got it, the U.S., Right. And then the reports that I see most recently of people being conscripted, basically oh. just pulled off the street and yeah. just, uh, you know, teenagers and people who are just being sent to the front lines to be slaughtered. It's 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 heartbreaking and it's uh, it's it's disgusting um, and more disgusting that more Americans don't know about it. Robert Perry, the founder of Consortium News world-renowned journalist who broke the Iran-Contra scandal uh, in the 80s. He also wrote about Ukraine. So there were journalists back then telling the truth, the same truth that you're telling now. And just, you know, not that many Americans heard the truth then or now. But here's a here's a piece um, from a piece that he wrote in his book, uh, American Dispatches. And I want to read a little bit uh, a little bit from that book, Neocons and the Ukraine Coup, February 23rd, 2014. Occurring during the Winter Olympics in Sochi, Russia, the coup in Ukraine dealt an embarrassing black eye to Russian President Vladimir Putin, who had offended neocon sensibilities by quietly cooperating with Obama to reduce tensions over Iran and Syria, where the neocons favorite military options. Over the past several weeks, Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych was undercut by a destabilization campaign encouraged by Newland and Pyatt, then deposed in a coup spearheaded by neo-Nazi militias. Even after Yanukovych and the political opposition agreed to an orderly transition toward early elections, right-wing armed patrols shattered the agreement and took strategic positions around Kiev. Despite these ominous signs, Ambassador Pyatt hailed the coup as a, quote, day for the history books, end quote. Most of the mainstream U.S. news media also sided with the coup, with commentators praising the overthrow of an elected government as a, quote, unquote, reform. But a few dissonant reports have pierced the happy talk by noting that the armed militias are part of the Pravi sector, a right-wing nationalist group which is often compared to the Nazis. Thus, the Ukrainian coup could become the latest neocon-initiated quote-unquote regime change that ousted a target government but failed to take into account who would fill the void. And so he goes on to talk about their other neocon failures like Iraq and Libya and other places that they had gone in and destroyed the government and then you had really extremist elements take over. Joe, I know you have to go. We don't have much time. But just one more note about the press coverage today, because we're going to get it on all sides. Are we 
getting it on all sides and starting in recent days, this kind of uh, rah-rah coverage of Ukraine when on the battlefield, those people who are actually reporting from the front tell a totally different story about what's happening to Ukraine and Ukrainians. Yeah, well, I won't be watching the mainstream coverage because I, I know what they're going to be saying. It's going to be a simplified uh, version in which the Ukraine is winning the war. It's certainly been a lot more difficult for Russia than they expected. They run up against a very well-trained and equipped military, which is uh, what the Minsk deception was all about, to build up this Ukrainian military once they drew, drew in Russia to try to weaken them and destroy Russia econom economically and uh, certainly the reputationally, although, as I said, the rest of the world doesn't really buy the story. So mm -hmm. we're going to keep hearing in the West that uh, Russia's losing, that it's been a disaster, that the Ukrainians are winning. And then they, at the same time, if we don't send them uh, another $100 billion uh, and more tanks and more equipment and more missiles and more bullets, then, you know, I guess they're not winning, are they? Because they're desperate for equipment. Look, it's it's an absolutely scary situation because neither side is going to back down, it looks like. Russia cannot afford to lose, and the U.S. has put all their eggs in this one. This was the big one that we were all afraid of where they pushed to try to destroy Russia and overthrow Putin and put back in somebody manageable for the United States. And right. instead we've seen China and Russia and India, Latin America and Africa joining together in a developing new economic, commercial, monetary uh, system in which the U.S. and Europe are on the outside looking in. This was a development that was already happening, but it's been sped up right now. And one could even see it as the final death of colonialism when the American and European dominance of the world is very much threatened right now. And it's because of this war, because the world is lined up against the West and for Russia, or they're just neutral, basically, don't care. They're not exercised by this. They don't think that Putin is threatening the whole world, which is absolute nonsense. He's not threatening Europe. This is the kind of rubbish we're subjected to, you know, that he's going to threaten all of Europe. He can't even, he's having a hard time taking Ukraine, taking the Donbass after a year. So, I mean, it, so they, on the one hand, they say he's going to take over Europe and take over the world. On the other hand, they're saying, what a backward, stupid army he has. He can't win. So which one is it? Which one is it? <laughs> you know, they just undermine their own rubbishy uh, mythological threat of Russia against the world by also then making fun of the Russian military and saying that they're a bunch of, you know, uh, failures and that they, they're losing. So it's unbelievable. Well, thank you, Joe. And now we're going to go to our next clip of Ukraine on Fire, including an interview with Robert Perry. <laughs> News media reported that the riot police cruelly attacked the students peacefully sleeping in their tents. But scenes from the event seem to tell a different story. It appears that the protesters were waiting for the police. Additionally, there were dozens of journalists and cameramen from all the new public TV news outlets prepared to cover the events. And most ominously, a group of well-trained young men arrived to Maidan almost simultaneously with the riot police. They infiltrated the crowd and began provocations with insults, stones, and torches. The right sector in Ukraine represents a part of the Ukrainian population that has often favored fairly extreme right-wing positions. They had militias, 
that uh, came especially during the Maiden protests. There were groups that were being shipped into Kiev where they would provide the muscle, in effect, for the demonstrations. So the demonstrations went from being relatively peaceful political protests to being increasingly violent. In early February of 2014, as the Maiden crisis was getting more violent, there was a phone call that was intercepted. It was a call between the Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs, Victoria Nuland, and the U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Jeffrey Pyatt. Questions of credibility are being raised after a private chat between two top U.S. diplomats was leaked online. I think Yats is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's, he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Cleach and Tony Book on the outside. I, I, I just think Cleach going in, he's going to be at that level working for Yatsenyuk. It's just not going to work. Yeah, no, it, I, think that's, you know? I think that's right. Okay. Good. Well, do you want us to try to set up a call with him as the next step? Sullivan's come back to me, uh, VFR, saying, you need Biden. And I said, probably tomorrow for an attaboy and to get the deets to stick. So okay. Biden's willing. So you had this remarkable phone call where you have these two senior officials of the U.S. government apparently talking about a coup or how they were planning to restructure the government of Ukraine. the EU. No, exactly. I'm not saying the whole U.S. government feels that way. The... There is, there is division on this, but the neoconservative element wants very much to change the strategic dynamic in Eastern Europe. The neocons are very smart people, and they've been at this for a long time. They came in around the issue of propaganda. They studied how to create hot buttons for the American people. They had this experience when they were getting the American people to get excited about Central America back in the 1980s. Sandinista regular army. The ground force is being equipped now with Russian artillery. And they've been applying those same strategies ever since. They remain very dedicated to achieving their goals. They still want to get rid of certain governments. They wanted regime change in Syria, for instance, regime change in Iran. They're very skilled at this, and they have a lot of allies now inside the news media, inside the government, and that means that they can do a lot to control the narrative of any story. I think in America these days, we have somehow told ourselves that there are a lot of ways of dealing with these problems other than hard power. Vladimir Putin cares about hard power. The neoconservatives can now demonize a leader of a country. That sells with the American people. So you don't just sort of argue a policy. You attack the leader. So the neoconservatives became very skilled at picking out leaders, finding their ugly traits, and then highlighting them. Yanukovych, he might say was a rather clunky political leader, but you make him into a devil. He's, he's totally corrupt and he's evil and he wants to kill people in the Maidan, these wonderful white-hatted demonstrators. So you've got a black hat versus white hat. And, that, and they, you keep repeating that basic scenario. And it works with the American people. You've got to realize what Vladimir Putin is. He's an old KGB colonel that wants to restore the Russian empire. You make them into demons, and the American people find that the way they can understand the world. Once that happens, it's very difficult for a journalist or anyone else to say, you know, hold it, that guy, he's kind of more of a gray hat than a white hat or a black hat. Uh, and if you say that, you suddenly are you're a Yanukovych apologist or you're a Putin apologist. And, and then the attacks come on to the person saying it, the journalist, the academic or whoever. And that was the late journalist Robert Perry, founder of Consortium News, uh, talking about the strategy of neocons to control the narrative and control corporate media. 
And maybe that's part of the the big story. Maybe that's the, really the big story in terms of what we're talking about in the past year, in terms of how the Ukraine war has been covered and how corporate media is captured by this spin of neocons and their warped view of the world becomes the only permissible way of viewing the world and of speaking about the world in mass media. But that's certainly not the case here at On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. We are heading toward our ninth year. And then after that, of course, our 10th year. And we want to be here. We don't want to live in a world where we're afraid of, you know, the two largest nuclear powers, you know, facing off each, against each other in this uh, game of chicken, you know, as the U.S. has gone right up to Russia's border and, and threatened it with having a heavily armed neighbor perhaps even a neighbor with nuclear weapons on its doorstep. We understand what's going on. We understand this history and we are providing these kinds of materials today so you can understand it too. This tremendous documentary, Ukraine on Fire, I want to be able to get to as many clips as I can. We'll try to get in our final clip from Ukraine on Fire. The situation in Crimea is being presented as a, a Russian invasion and again, nobody who looks at this seriously and looks at the poll numbers, some of the poll numbers done by the U.S. government agencies themselves, showing that the people of Crimea preferred being part of Russia. In the U.S. news media, it has all been presented as the Russians invaded. They then staged a sham election with people with guns at their backs. Somehow they faked the ballot boxes to get 96 percent approval for uh, rejoining Russia. The idea of a referendum in Crimea is uh, just quite simply unconstitutional. But it does raise questions on whether this vote really is free and fair, especially given the heavy military presence in Crimea right now, Errol. So that's how it's been sold to the American people. The reality is very different. The atmosphere here certainly is electric. Thousands of people who've gathered in the capital Crimean city of Simferopol, all of this following a referendum held last Sunday in which the majority of people here overwhelmingly voted in support of being reunited with Russia. As long ago as 1804, Sevastopol's naval base became the main military port of the Russian Empire on the Black Sea. During the Second World War, the heroic defense of Sevastopol lasted almost a year and took hundreds of thousands of lives. Therefore, the naval base in Crimea has a legacy of historical pride for the Russian Black Sea Fleet, as well as being of huge strategic importance. I don't want to miss out on speaking to Gerald Horn about this anniversary as well. So, so let's go to that talk with Gerald, and then we'll try to get in our final clip from Ukraine on Fire. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston. And Gerald, I am devoting this day to the one year anniversary of the in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, I'm sure you know that uh, we have been bombarded in recent days and will be bombarded by corporate media coverage that really doesn't tell the American people or people in Europe, you know, what is really happening in, in Ukraine. And most people in this country and in Europe will think that 
the war started one year ago. What are your thoughts? Well, obviously, that's not accurate. I'm sure our audience, above all, recognizes that at least you could say it started in 2014 with one of the infamous color revolutions engineered uh, by Washington in Kiev. Or alternatively, you could go back to the infamous national security advisor under Jimmy Carter, speaking of Zbigniew Brzezinski of Polish descent, who had real animosity towards Moscow, who in his book, The Grand Chessboard, spoke openly about not only uh, detaching Ukraine from the Soviet Union as a precursor to the breakup of the Soviet Union, but also the fragmentation of Russia itself, which I'm afraid to say is still on the drawing board. I think the whole world is on the brink of a possible catastrophe, not only with the ratcheting of tensions between Washington and Beijing as the U.S. charges China with coming to the aid of its ally in Moscow, President Xi Jinping of China is due in Russia in a few weeks. And I'm sure that the headlines will be screaming and blood curdling as a result. And also speaking of catastrophes, I should mention that with regard to the fact that Russia has decided to curtail participation in the so-called start a nuclear treaty, because from their point of view, allowing inspectors from the North Atlantic countries onto nuclear bases in Russia, within that possible intelligence being passed on to the Ukrainians so that they could attack said military bases, that that was not a good deal for Russia. But at the same time, it brings the world closer, I'm afraid to say, to a potential uh, nuclear catastrophe, all as a result of this harebrained scheme of seeking to bring Ukraine into NATO and also seeking the longer term goal of regime change in Moscow. Now, for those who doubt that latter point, pay attention to the speech that the French President Macron gave at the Munich Security Conference this past weekend, where he made it clear that he was a team player and that he would go down with the ship with regard to this misadventure in Ukraine. But he also made it clear that this idea of regime change in Moscow, regime change in a major nuclear power, was simply ludicrous and ridiculous. And that bespeaks also another result of this escapade in Ukraine, which is the impending fragmentation of the North Atlantic bloc, possibly leading even to the disappearance of NATO, which you may recall was not the favorite organization of the 45th U.S. president, uh, Mr. Trump, and an organization that even Mr. McCrone McC- referred to uh, some months ago as being brain dead. On May 2, 2014, soccer fans flocked to the center of Odessa City for the Ukrainian championship match. Surprisingly, a great number of these fans who descended into Odessa just the night before also turned out to be fighters from the Maidan self-defense units. 
along with members of radical organizations from all parts of Ukraine. These fans, masked, armed, and shouting nationalist mottos, began disturbances in the center of the city as they marched to the anti-Maidan tent encampment, where they attacked. The anti-Maidan protesters sought shelter in the trade union house, but it was a trap. Maidan supporters started throwing Molotov cocktails into the building until it was engulfed in flames. People burned to death inside, or, trying to escape, jumped from the windows. Although a fire station was less than a mile away, it took almost half an hour for firefighters to arrive. When they finally did, the damage had been done. But here's an intriguing fact. Just a few days before those dreadful events, a messenger from Maidan, Andriy Peruby, made a visit to Odessa. It's an interesting coincidence that some of the people he met with in Odessa were seen at the scene that fateful day. But not everyone was mourning. On the popular political talk show, Schuster Live, the news about the people burnt alive in Odessa was welcomed with a long round of applause. On its Facebook page, the right sector announced the events of May 2nd, a proud moment in national history. An official investigation into this sad event has been going on now for nearly two years, and it's yet to reach a conclusion. Well, that's it for today's show. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. We're on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and on all your podcast platforms at On the Ground with Esther Averam. Our website and archive of all of our shows is onthegroundshow.org. In addition, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and I also link to every show on my Instagram page at Esther underscore Averam. Special thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon.com at On The Ground Show. Our theme music for our show is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take really good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. On the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored, supported show. If you have not already subscribed at Patreon, you can do so for as little as $3 a month or all at once at $33 for the whole year. And I know that the show is worth more than that to you. If you like the show, if you love the show, if you regularly check it out, if you rely on it, if, you know, it's a part of your soundtrack in any kind of way, please support. Go to patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. And I would very much appreciate your support. And it would mean so much to us at patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash on the ground show. Or you can go to the show website, which you might go to anyway, if you reach the blog that way and you click on the donate now button or the, um, support donate button and you can see all ways to give.